0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Behind every good story is an interesting person.
1: This is Person of Interest. The q 102s is
0: Jeff Thomas. Bob Lees is one hell of an interesting guy. Born and raised in the river town of New Richmond, Ohio, he went on to become a successful international businessman, traveling and living all over the globe, rubbing shoulders with American presidents, heads of state, and some of the most powerful business leaders in the world. But he says some of the best years of his life are the most recent ones, after he returned to New Richmond and bought the Front Street Cafe in 2006. Make no mistake about it, he still finds time to advise executives and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies when they call, that is when he's not bussing tables in his restaurant. Bob Lees is a true raconteur, and that's why he is this week's Person of Interest. I've been struggling to come up with a way to start this interview because you are so many things. Businessman, an expert, an advisor, a philanthropist. I'm not quite sure where to start with a guy like you. Well, it all began.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I was born, my, my grandpa, Thomas Lees, was an, actually an orchestra leader and jumps on the with his family on the, uh, the Titanic, uh, not Titanic, I'm sorry, the um, uh, Lusitania. And makes his way to the United States, Canada, and ultimately to this wonderful little village called New Richmond, Ohio, which is just upriver from here. And he opened a English pub. So my family's actually been, I grew up, and this is, this is the roots thing. In New Richmond. In New Richmond, uh, on the Ohio, overlooking the Ohio. I was, I was born upstairs from Grandpa's uh, uh, a little uh, family pub and weighed 11 pounds 13 ounces and to let you know the kind of stock I come from You're a uh, big baby. I was a big baby and mom uh, I was born at noon and mom was uh, serving uh, drinks at the bar uh, that evening so uh, okay no that's women were tough back then so boy I'll tell you what so so grandpa does, starts this this tradition and we're still in it today and about 10 years ago I moved back Home to New Richmond, I'm very, very homesick for my hometown. I miss the Ohio River, and that's 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 really the DNA. There's flood mud in my veins. What and, is it about the Ohio River? It, you Minnesota? know, it's I guess growing up as a, as a small boy, and, and I was also blessed in New Richmond at the time. The the Delta Queen uh, was um, headquartered in Cincinnati, and Cap Wagner, Ernie Wagner, was an uh, up the street neighbor of ours. So on a couple occasions, I actually. When he was going to Pittsburgh from Cincinnati, I would actually ride down with, uh, with him and Mrs. Wagner and ride back up the river to New Richmond. He'd let me blow the horn. He'd, I'd blow the whistle. He'd play the calliope, pull in. So Tom Sawyer, toe-headed little kid, uh, that'd be me, run up the riverbank. And I thought every little kid grew up like that. But what was fascinating to me about the river, it was a, it was a place to escape with when you had stress or when you had anxieties or whatever, going down plain by the river. You know building forts out of uh, out of willows and you know and fishing of course it was a big part of it but also always looking in my case and i think this is what led me toward my international career um, looking up river and say, where does it come from? And down river,
0: where does it go? And In other words, it inspired a, a, a curiosity, a wonder to see what was beyond your borders. Absolutely. And then what I discovered uh, with spending
1: a lot of time with uh, more senior citizens in my village, the amazing history of that little village and what occurred there. We have 10 officially recognized Underground Railroad abolitionist sites in the village, which most people wouldn't have even known, but Harry Beecher Stowe's brother George was pastor in our Presbyterian church for six years, which is still standing. And I've learned so much about what happened in that the founders of New Richmond uh, actually came from Richmond, Virginia, and they were die in the wool abolitionists, and they wanted to settle on the Ohio side of the river to help people escape slavery. So from New Richmond, uh, the roots of New Richmond are Richmond, Virginia, actually. So again, another dynamic, but, and then there's always people coming down the river and, and you know, the river is a moving thing and in its day, it was the super highway of the, of the West, as you know, in its day, Cincinnati was one of the fastest growing cities on the planet because of the river, right? So, um, I, as an example, in my grandpa's, uh, little pub, um, Roy Rogers, who was on his way from, uh, Portsmouth, Ohio, out West to become famous, right? The cowboy and all. Um, actually played for tips in grandpa's uh, band and of course I, I i didn't know that but i i mean i didn't i wasn't probably even born at the time but but those were the stories so there's all these really kind of cool people that uh, that river towns uh, you know sort of attract and, uh, and of all different you know shape sizes flavors importance uh, you know notoriety
0: Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amy Tortells, you name it they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: Be whatever. But there was this excitement for me was it was like and then the other thing about the river, it was so beautiful and sometimes so peaceful and then at other times we're packing up, moving out because the river is, is uh, you know, sort of coming to get us as it just did in February a little bit right here. And uh, most recently, but I remember one year we actually, our house flooded twice and we decided mom decided and dad that we're going to move to Amelia, which was one of the most traumatic experiences I ever had as a little boy going into, um, and when you're from a, a little river rat town called, like New Richmond, uh, going to a, another school that was arch rival in sports and everything else. And you suddenly you're a little kid, and it's wintertime and it's cold, and you're you know everything you've got's flooded. and You're suddenly in another school. Little kids can be awful, you know. So we begged our parents to move us back, move us back into our, uh, our our river town. So that town has always been a part important part to me. So I look at the river as beauty. I look at it as the super highway of the West and all the history. A river that people uh, crossed. It had that river not been there, I don't know what the boundary would have been. But be able to go from slavery to freedom. I mean, it's a dynamic thing and i never lost you know i'd be flying from tokyo to washington or new york on meetings in my international uh you know a career and i as the, the plane starts to dis, uh, descend uh you know about cincinnati to go go into the east coast and i'm looking and i look down and there's my river you know and it's just i don't know i can't even explain it but there's something very special about a river so it, it affected me and and then growing up in the restaurant business uh we we were a family that believed in in serving people and uh and and that's always been a part of of what we did you know my mom started several charities but i'm talking serving people in 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 the restaurant business and and customers come in all shapes sizes personalities and everything else and it's not easy so um, i'm really proud that our front street cafe that we opened 10 years ago which i really it was a labor of love and it was at times it was called a hard labor of love then you know wasn't a a money-making kind of situation but the bottom line was um... we had new
0: richmond needed a gathering place a third place whatever and it did not prior to 2006. There was a period there where there wasn't really a place for that?
1: There there was there was my my family, of course, always been in, in business, different restaurants. It's, someone said the other day, why did you move your restaurant so many times? Well, the river would take, take them out for one reason. Yeah. And others was that it would be change of, uh, at one point we owned uh, the Nurtzman Motel Marina, for instance. Another time it was the Landing. Another time it was Crystal Kitchen. So, so different names, different kinds of foods or whatever. But I wanted to upgrade to something a little more healthy and also a place where people would come in the daytime, do good things, talk about things, do good for community. There are definitely some good pubs and uh, um, up, up there now is a Green Kayak and Skippers River Cafe, for instance, uh, uh, who the owner of that happens to be my baby brother, but uh, so we're, we're still, we're, we're there, but needed a place and it's also a, an art gallery and, but we do, we do fundraisers for uh, uh, charities and things, so and we also have some of the best entertainment now. In in the, I think in Cincinnati they like to come out to a smaller venue, so we have jazz, blues, Zydeco, swing, uh, bluegrass. Um, I'm missing a couple of genres of music. So it's a combination of great place to come in the daytime and uh, enjoy the river and all, but in the evening we have really good live entertainment and a good chef. So, but here's here's where things uh, kind of get interesting. Um, I, in a way, I've had sort of a um, uh, Horace Gump kind of of life, um, and 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 I'll explain. I need to explain that I think, but um, I, I finished high school and there and working for the the post office as well as my family restaurant. But that kind of gave me a uh, an entry into the federal government and. Jagger Hoover um, at one period of time, back in the FBI days in the, the 60s. I graduated
0: in 67. So 67, Jagger Hoover was still the director he of the He very FBI. much was. He, he was. President Johnson. Was. Yes,
1: exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, I uh, get recruited um, along with a couple other classmates uh, from, from New Richmond. And and I think what it was, Jagger Hoover, they were bringing, these were admin jobs. It came in because most of the, uh, the young uh, men especially were off to Vietnam at that point. So I moved to Washington, D.C., and no more than I got to Washington, D.C., Martin Luther King um, is assassinated. So one of the big experiences I had was the riots of, of watching Washington, D.C., and being a part of that, being held up in the Department of Justice building and not being able to leave because of riots. In 1968. That would have been 68, right. So 67, I go there, and I, I met J. Edgar Hoover on a number of times, a, a number of occasions. A matter of fact, I've... For your uh, information, I brought a photograph of a you know eighteen year old Bobby here uh, wow. meeting Jagger Hoover. So a couple of things happened there. Number one, I I suddenly got into feeling um, uh, sensitive about politics, and I met uh, you know a, a great man, a uh, powerful man, Jagger J. Hoover.
0: So the and it, a controversial man,
1: a, a controversial man, very 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 much so a controversial man. But uh, my last day on the job, by the way, of, of uh, of working for uh, the FBI, and I worked right below him, literally in an office, and saw him every and day. And this was an
0: administrative job. It was,
1: it was an admin. It was in files and communications. But I, but I, but actually, that that time they were uh, there was this new technology called microfiche. Ah, yes. yeah. remember that? Yeah. And and so uh, so I, one of my jobs was to go through some of these old files, and I could kind of pick and choose. And they were bringing them up to date. And. So I'd pull out things like, I probably wasn't supposed to do this, Bonnie and Clyde, and, and all kind of these, uh, you know. Uh, kind interesting of, cases. Really, when I, and I and Grew Hoover kind of liked interesting uh, cases uh, to take a look at. You know, it had been probably, I don't know, goodness knows how many years, uh, you know, had passed. But, I, but I, w- I was in a position where I saw some of his memos, some of his back and forth between Bobby Kennedy, who they, there wasn't a big love affair there. But anyway, here right. is this kid from a born above the bar in Richmond, Ohio, Chit chatting with J Edgar Hoover and all that, and, and
0: snooping through the files,
1: and snooping through the <laughs> files, right, right, right. But I didn't leak them to anyone. That's See, good. So that's, good. Uh, that's good. That's, that's good. That's good. So then, so then, um, um, Mom called one day and she said, "I think you've got a notice uh, of, of draft." And I said, "Well, because when you're in the restaurant business, you do have some political uh, influence, right? You know people because everybody comes." And I say, so well, you're getting
0: a draft notice. Yes, working for the, the FBI. Viet, working for the FBI. Yes, yes. This is during the period of the Vietnam War. Very much so. Very much so. And you're working in Washington, Washington D.C. in the headquarters. In an office right below J. Edgar Hoover, right. who many would argue at that time. Yes was the most powerful person in
1: the i'd say the from universe. the memos that i saw and, and again didn't share but i i'd say uh, what he had on people and how he wasn't shared to remind people of what he had on them uh, i'd say he was probably the most important person in the united states and a, a mere uh, uh, attorney general, uh, Bobby Kennedy or whatever, uh, wasn't going to tell him what to do. The kid, you know, yeah. uh, and Jagger Hoover, of course been around a while. Right. So, right.
0: And so you get the draft notice. I
1: do. And then my mom says to me, I think we, I don't know, you know, you know, people, but she said, if you can, uh, uh join the Navy by Monday, this was a Friday. Um, uh, I think it'll be okay. And I I just, what was the reasoning behind that? The Navy. My dad was in the Navy, and I had a strong Irish Catholic mom that you did what she told you to do.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, but what was the advantage it, to joining the Navy? Not
1: being in the Army, uh, just being in infantry or whatever.
0: So in other words, if you join the Navy, then it will hopefully, the idea is that will keep you out of combat on the ground. In Vietnam, it, it, uh,
1: there was I think that part of it, but also I think Mom wanted me to use my 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 brain more. She thought there was something that I you know I uh, had to offer. You know, God knows everyone that served, and and I also was in Vietnam. That's down the road, uh, you know. What I'll be talking to you about, but um, but uh, but in my case, I'd, I'd worked for already worked for the post office delivering mail in my village, and then working for the FBI, and it was just almost natural that I'd go into. And I think if I'd gone into the army, I still would have probably gone into something in the, in the area of, you know, admin, administrative or whatever, you know, right. um, but I hadn't been in the college. seat, so it wasn't going to be an officer thing. So you had not been, no, I was taking some classes in Washington DC at the time while working for the FBI. Also working in the lady Shoe Department at the Heck department store to make money uh, for Christmas. but anyway, you' got do got do. do what you got to do. yeah so then everything is cool. The Navy accepts on Sunday I go down to like Falls Church, Virginia, and I find an open billet in the Navy and I signed up and I, I got the word back, Hey, I'm going to the Navy so I, that, and the FBI, by the way, Jeb Hoover, even though he wanted us to come in young, very young and he knew that draft would come up and he was vehemently opposed to draft deferments. So the fact when I walked in and told my special agent in charge that I joined the Navy, he said, the director will be pleased. So I got to tell you about my last day at the FBI. All right. So the, it was a weekend and I think it was probably April, May. And it was, it was very, very pleasant. And we'd gone to, uh, ocean city, Maryland, which wasn't too far from Washington. And I tanned up and, and probably burned up pretty quick. And, and my last day in the FBI, I'm saying none of this, you know, red tie, blue suit, whatever, I show up in a plaid jacket. My last day, we're celebrating. I'm saying goodbye. I'm going off to war, and I've got a good tan or or a burn or whatever. And I've got plaid jacket and 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 so I get a call from the special agent in charge and said Robert Lee's report to the SAC special agent in charge, and and I w- walked into his office and he looked at me and he said, "Holy s!" And I said, "What's the matter?" He said, "Look at you." And I said, "Well, it's my last day, blah blah." And he said, "The director wants to see you. That's J Edgar Hoover." So he gets on the, on the um, speaker phone and he calls in these other agents. They proceed to take their
0: clothes off so that I am presentable to go in and see um j edgar hoover because you could not approach the director of the fbi j edgar hoover in a plaid jacket you couldn't enter the door at the fbi in a plaid jacket in those days he those was were, very he was a stickler for attire absolutely and this was my last day fling. we were going to have the office party the farewell and and all that and but it still mattered
1: enough to have you oh, change your clothes yes oh yes so when i went in to see him it was supposed to be a five minute photo op but he and I, because I'd always on elevators, whatever, I chit chatted with him. I'm not, I'm not shy. You'll learn from this interview, and and unassuming. But um, he and I kind of like we just hit it off. So that 20 or about 10 or 15 minute, um, uh, what was supposed to be photo op um, turned into about a 45 minute just very healthy discussion, solving all the problems of the world or whatever and he wished me uh, on 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 my way. And so, and I'll show you that photograph in a second, an 18-year-old Bobby Lees from New Richmond with Jaguar Hoover. Absolutely. So now I go into the military and it worked out well because I'd been with the post office, right, in in New Richmond delivering mail. That's my key. That's my entry into government. And because I'd worked for the FBI, I now had a top secret clearance. So when I get to boot camp, which was pretty rough, but because i'd been a mailman they they put me ahead of, of the post office so i had a pretty good actually i had boot camp was pretty cool for me and um and i sorted mail and did sat in the other and and uh, so it, it was i like this this is working right you do one thing and the next thing can be better yeah. and so then uh, the, after i took my test and all they 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 decided that i should be in the area of naval naval intelligence and naval security group and so i was sent to pensacola and I uh, finished. I don't know. It was in the top three, certainly, of my class. And they so I had choice of going anywhere in the world I wanted to go. And and that was a decision to make, right? I mean, it could have been Scotland, it could have been Spain, it could have been whatever. But it was Japan. You chose Japan. I did. Why? I did. Well, uh, my dad had had been. In, my dad died when I was fairly young, and he uh, he uh, had been in Japan, and he was he was a, an artist. Um, as a matter of fact, he would have been a graduate of the pre DAP. Uh, Cincinnati Art Institute, I think it was, and uh, so he ran a, ran a bar, but he was he was he was an artist. And I grew up with paintings of Mount Fuji and uh, beautiful classical Japanese women in their kimono and all that. And and then I'm thinking it's just so far away. I, I maybe in my life can travel to the United States, go
0: to Europe, whatever. But I want to go to Japan. So it was like a bucket list thing. There was a longing there. There was an intrigue associated with
1: Japan. There, there definitely was. And so when I get to Japan, I was I was there and. Uh, a little top secret base uh, outside Tokyo and uh, and I guess I was there for about a, a year and then uh, they asked uh, for volunteers to do what I do in Japan to come to Vietnam so I I went to Vietnam and was very very proud to do that
0: and so, what part of Vietnam, in in the midst of this yeah. crazy war? What year are we now? 1968, so we'd be, 69? We'd be up to 69, getting into yeah, so, sixty-nine,
1: seventy. Yeah. So so the war is still raging. Oh, it's raging. Yeah. I was in a, a number of bases uh, in and around Da Nang, up in up in the up in the north, and uh, stationed with the Third Marines, and uh, and they the the Marines. I remember one point a Marine. Uh, uh, the Navy we had we were able to have our hair a little longer, and Admiral Zumwalt uh, had come up with these new liberal rules that allowed sailors to grow, uh, you know, well cropped uh, beards and this, that, and the other. Not that I was ever able to grow one, but uh, but in any case, so the Marines kind of resented that. So when I went there, they also they resented the fact that it, that naval intelligence was required for the Marines, and I said, yeah. duh, you know, but anyway, so then, right. then <laughs> they smack you around a little bit, but uh, but had wonderful, wonderful friends and lost some friends in, in mm-hmm. Vietnam, um, and then, see, it would have been also in 69 that it, from my base in Japan, this is where my intrigue over Korea came in, um, we had, uh, I think it was about 30 of my, my, my buddies that I worked with. Um, were on a plane called the EC-121 and it was a, a splight a reconnaissance plane, but it was shot out of the skies over international water in uh, um, uh, not far from North Korea. Clearly wasn't in their, you know, in their water, but but it was shot down. And for that, I lost all of all of these friends. Um, had I not been on the ground that day, I could have been up there. You know, it was one of those kind of things. And, and who listening. shot down the plane? North Koreans. North Koreans. Yeah. And... So I don't want to get too far off because I could go on and on and on about sure. North Korea and, and where we are today with them, but um, we did nothing. We did nothing to punish North Korea at that point, and 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 I because I, it was
0: strategically not prudent at the time, you know, I, given
1: what we had going on in Southeast Asia. You actually hit it right on the head. The last thing they wanted is that we've got war in Southeast Asia. Do we want to be in war in, in Northeast Asia? But we we basically placated, and I mean we. uh, rattled sabers and we denounced and we did whatever in the end of the day we did nothing Mm -hmm. and if you remember the the pueblo was another situation where we did nothing from the north so uh, i watched administrations after administrations after administrations do absolutely nothing and that's what's brought us to the point where we are today with them now being a nuclear power they were nowhere near that in those days so so anyway back from japan i meet my wife we've now been married uh Forty-seven years, and you
0: speak Japanese. When uh, did you take Japanese? Okay.
1: Conversationally, I can handle it pretty well. And and the the more sake I drink, the better I get. I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> um. But but uh, I fell in love with Japan and its culture and the dynamism of that country. But keep in mind, when I was in Japan late '60s, Japan was still a poor country, and um, and it was a polluted country. Um. Uh, and and they would they would say, "We'll clean up our environment." When our rice bowls are full. In other words, it's all about jobs, all about jobs. And manufacturing. And manufacturing, right. But even the manufacturing um, was all about employing their people. Because you'll see in places like China and Japan, there is no welfare state. I mean, that seems funny when you think of China being a communist country. Right. But your your savings, uh, the Chinese save 50% of their income for their retirement. And, and the Japanese historically, they spend less now because they're, as an aging society, they're not accumulating income, right? So they're right. spending it now, interesting but they're also not replacing themselves now with young people, which is a challenge for Japan. But so Japan, um, when I got to Japan, I, I was in my element and I said, I want to, I want to be, I'm still in the Navy, right? we still very little college. So when I was getting out, I came back to the university of Cincinnati and I started out in Claremont college. Um, out in Batavia, UC Claremont. I did, and two years ago I was there. Uh, I don't know if it's distinguished or extinguished uh, alum for the year, but um, but why, I started. Why there.
0: UC Claremont and not the main
1: campus? I'm so it's glad it's you
0: good. asked that question.
1: <laughs> I I was working as a deputy sheriff for Don Watson in Batavia because I had worked for the FBI and had a top secret clearance. So when I came home, there were no jobs uh, basically available for veterans, but the war was start starting to come down right by 71 right and so they had these programs that put gi's to work and don watson carmette county sheriff's department is near to this day is near and dear to me but they gave me a job and i helped them organize their fingerprint department and do this this that, and the other but i got a adjust the sheriff at that time was he's one of those people that um affects your life and he says boy you're going to you're going to college hmm. So I came down to the main campus one day, and there was a big anti-war demonstration going on. And I thought, you know, that, that this isn't me. You know, the main campus of the University of Cincinnati, and and then and, and you know,
0: kids, you know, that didn't know what the heck's going on in the war or anything else, protesting. In other words, you felt that that the, that the younger generation, and we saw this in campuses all across the country at that time, who were speaking out against the war, who were afraid of being drafted and being sent to war. Yes. Were you on the other side of that? You were in support of the war at that time? I I, I still, um, you know, because I've
1: had a career in international business, I can't tell you the times that I've had um, people come up to me and ask me if I'm an Australian or Canadian or American, I see American, and and they'll Say, how old are you? And then if, especially in this has happened to be in Malaysia, it's happened in Indonesia, it's happened to be in Thailand. And the guy said, did you serve in Vietnam? And we're talking about local people that don't look like you and me. Right. Right. And the first time I was hesitant, you know, to whatever. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, thank you. They they would say, thank you. Thank you. Buy me a drink, whatever. They said, we're a free country today because you took a stand uh, in Vietnam, uh, the United States did. So that's yeah. a side you don't always hear on this side. And God knows whether or not the 50 plus thousand, uh, lives that, that, you know, and, and billions of dollars that we spent in our mind, we think it's justified. I think right. the loss of one life is, 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 is one too many, but I can tell you the areas around there, you can laugh, look back now and and say, Oh, that was a myth that the, the, uh, the, the red tide and all that. No, it wasn't a myth. It It was real and it was spreading. And so these countries were able to develop quite nicely uh, and not, not under a communist regime, but under free enterprise. And of course one exception would have been uh, North Korea never, never came out of it. China took him years to come out of it and uh, Vietnam itself. If you've noticed when Vietnam came out of this, 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 the stupor, they were into saying that communism and socialism is the way to go. Uh, they immediately embraced the United States, yeah, and and uh, that Cameron Bay and the, all those facilities that we built, the harbors and things in in Hanoi, are now uh, amazing assets to them for trade, trade and investment. And our and the Seventh Fleet now um, is is warmly welcome to 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 visit uh, Hanoi and um, and uh, Da Nang and uh, uh, I still say
0: Saigon, but Ho Chi Minh City. We're going to pause here for just a quick break, but when we come back, more from Bob Lees, his return home after Vietnam, the course he set for a career in international business spurred on by his passion for the Asian Pacific region. What does he think about President Trump's trade war with China and what he thinks the president needs to do to really make America great again? As Person of Interest continues next. We'll be back with more Person of Interest in a moment. And now, Person of Interest with q and 2's Jeff Thomas continues. Welcome back to Person of Interest. We're talking to New Richmond, Ohio's own Bob Lees, who grew up to become one of the most successful international businessmen in the world, traveling all over the globe, rubbing shoulders with heads of state and some of the most powerful CEOs in business. After working for the FBI and serving in Vietnam, he went back to New Richmond. It was the early 1970s. And it was time for Bob to figure out who he was going to be when he grew up. So you're working as a deputy sheriff in <laughs> yeah. Batavia. Yeah. Yeah. You decide, after careful consideration, you're going to attend school. If you're going to attend school, it'll be UC Claremont. Yes. Is this when you started turning your attention more to business?
1: Well, a combination of of uh, business, economics, and but always...
0: International, because the interest, the intrigue you had for that part of the world still persisted the with you. The energy level of what I saw occurring there, the growth and uh,
1: and the uh, products being produced, and the work ethics and everything else—it just—it just—it—it it was me, you know. And and I, and, and I and I, I I just had to be a part of that. So Claremont College for me, uh, UC Claremont—it's it's called now. Um, And they may not appreciate it, but I appreciate them. But it it was a stepping stone for me to get into the main campus with full confidence. And when I got to the main campus, there was a real shortage. There were some key people there that understood international, but I can remember a couple uh, professors, I would sort of tap them on the shoulder because they happened to look Asian and say, what do you teach, blah, blah, blah. And in a couple of cases, did independent study to be able to get the degree. And I think I had one of the very first ever Asian studies degree, uh, a, a minor um, from the university of Cincinnati. And I finished four years at UC in three years and did quite nicely you know, with a GPA as well. Cause by that point I'm married to my Japanese wife. We got a baby, and I knew what I wanted, you know, sort of driven kind of thing. And
0: so. when did you start taking Japanese? I, here at the University of Cincinnati. Here at the University. Yes, of, so, yes. so when you married your wife, the right. first time you went to Japan, you yes. did not speak the language. No, and you immersed and, yourself in the culture. It yeah. sounds like, but yeah. you hadn't quite mastered the language yet. It wasn't until you came back here that you studied Japanese.
1: Exactly, and I, I mean, I could, I could order a beer, I could get around in a taxi, I could do whatever. But, but what's, uh, what's interesting about my wife, she spoke very little English, and I spoke very little Japanese. So, wow, it, what was that? Lo- it's called love. That's what it's called. It's called love, and, and, and chemistry, and karma, and all kind of things. And what's really interesting, and she may not like me to say uh, about, Japanese are very personal about themselves, but my wife is the daughter of a 15th generation Zen Buddhist priest and her brother is now the 16th generation and her nephew is going to be the 17th generation of her family to be Buddhist priests at the same temple in Japan. So uh, we, we jokingly say that um, she had the same address for 400 years until she married me and we've moved 23 times I think since we've been married. But, but the Japanese culture, I remember the first time I met my mother-in-law, my mom's from Kentucky and, and, and Kentucky people, are hugging people, and especially you've got a little Irish mix in there, right? And so I meet my family, and I hug my and the, when I hug my grandmother or my mother-in-law, it was it wasn't that they were angry, but they were just never experienced anything like this. Important, and they were at an airport, and they're kind of just you know moving around. They're like, what, what do we do, with this guy? And they didn't know La- what to make of it. Know what to make of it. So, uh, and then I, I could feel my, my wife saying, you know, it's not what we do. Oh. <laughs> and, and then on my face, I'm sure is red and I started apologizing. No, no, no. So then next time I met my mother-in-law, I'd done my homework and I went up and I just bowed very nicely to her. And then she looked at me with kind of arms out because she'd done her homework on me too. Uh. See, and, uh, and I didn't hug her and she said to my wife he doesn't like me anymore. Oh! So now if you go to my wife's family, believe me, there's a lot of hugging that goes on. And that's an influence from mom who was from Bracken County, Kentucky, by the way. So we are hugging people. I love that. Yeah. So from Japan, um, uh, let's, let's see. So my studies start here. And then, then I went uh, to uh, at the advice of, uh, you know, for young people that might hear this, there, there are people that, Truly care about you in this world, and and they will give you advice, and you know, and and listen to them because later on you look back and say they're no longer with us. But my God, I wish I'd have thanked them more often. But yeah. University of Cincinnati a professor introduced me to a school in Arizona called the Thunderbird School of Global Management. Never the heard Thunderbird
0: of Thunderbird School of Global Management in Arizona. Yeah.
1: And the only thing I knew about the Thunderbird at the time was a cheap wine that was known to be drank at high school. Uh, but this school is an amazing school. It's probably to this day the, the best international uh, school for economics and business on the planet. And I was fortunate enough to to go there. Um, and from then, I um, I remember writing, a, uh, I, it was job opportunity time. And I think I still hold a record, this this record. Um, I had the most, you know, you apply for jobs. And that's before the PC. So I had the most rejection letters of any
0: graduate student from that institution in the history of the school. And so, is that the most rejection letters because of the sheer volume of how many jobs you applied for? And, and yes. Or were you that undesirable? No, they? but but I also set a record for the most job offers.
1: Ah, so, you know, so there was just, there, there were more it's rejections. A game. Yeah, <laughs> it was a numbers game. So I, um, I was, uh, as a matter of fact, a, um, a, a recruiter for the Corning glass company in upstate New York, um, was c- uh, coming to school and they, had, and, and they had a posting that they wanted someone that spoke Japanese and understood the culture and me, 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 me. And then the bottom said, must be a Japanese national. And I said, that's not going to stop me. So I write a letter back and said, look, I can do this and that. And my wife, my 15th generation Zen Buddhist priest daughter, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And anything they can do, I can do better kind of thing. So they came out and... I get get an interview and and I I went to work for the Corning Glass Company. I loved it, small town, upstate New York. of the Houghton family that owned it, wonderful, wonderful people. And about two years later, the president of International he called me in and uh, and he says, Bob, I'm going through my my desk and I found this letter. Uh, he kept it for two years and and it, it it was my letter saying, damn it, you know I'm you know I'm, I'm I can do this, I can do this. And 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 then in the margin he wrote on there. He wrote on in, in the margin. He said to his VP of uh, of of human resources, "Go to back to Arizona and hire this kid." So he wrote no that. But, but then, so he had the letter. So then he said, "What do you think of that?" And I said, "I obviously." Could have demanded a higher entry-level salary. I didn't know that. You know? <laughs> if I knew
0: you were that passionate yeah, about me, I would yeah, have asked for more yeah. money.
1: And then, in the way of a compliment, and I, and, I, and I don't say this, um, uh, you know, out of bragging or anything else, but he said to me in a review, he said people that have talked about you said that you have an uncanny way of, of, um, of, of sort of meeting someone and and really. Um, sizing them up and all of this, you know, good, bad, the ugly or whatever. And he said, that's one of your, your strengths. And where does that come from? Did that come from the Thunderbird school? Did that come from the Buddhist blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, it's growing up in the bar because when you're behind the bar and I had tended bar, you didn't know whether a guy at the bar was going to fight you or try to pick you up or, or cause all kind of problems or get or whatever. So you very quickly when you're in that restaurant business, you, and that's why this is where the New Richmond roots keeps coming back to me, you know, about how you treat people with respect. You get to know them, but you also, try, you try to figure out, you know, the the good and the maybe not so good about a person before you move forward. So that led me from Corning and I did, I just had a great career. We lived in the Caribbean for a while. I traveled the Middle East for them and, um, and we were living in upstate New York, but I was, at uh, headhunted, um, and, and boy, that's 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 a, a good experience to go through when you know, there's a big company uh, that wants you, and um, and they and they were in L.A. Security Pacific Financial Corporation. So anyway, and they were going to move us there and help us in all kinds of different ways. And my wife, being Japanese and being on the West Coast, it it definitely you know, excuse me, was um, with sensitivity that I had her in mind that we're going to go to L.A. where there's a Japanese community where you know all of this. So anyway, so we, we, we went there and, and so when I was there, I, I was running a senior vice president, but running a, tr- a new trading company that they had set up. And, um, but I was the spokesperson for the bank. I became the spokesperson for security, Pacific financial, which is a big bank in its day. And I, I was involved in the world trade, uh, all the different associations gave speeches and all that about, you know, the, uh, uh, international things that I was just starting to pick up. Some I got from my education, but some was just my own experience. And that led to um, a position that was it um, uh, became opened in an organization called I, I was also while I was at Security Pacific Bank, and shortly thereafter, uh, I was president of the uh, California the Gold Coast World Trade Center Association. I'd founded the uh, with a partner, the Children of Russia Foundation. I had um, uh, you know, was very much involved in international of uh, uh, you know uh, events and affairs at the time, did a lot of speaking. So a position came up as Secretary General of the Pacific Basin Economic Council, and um, I was involved locally in politics. Um, I was working actually had, under George Bush the the first. He had a concept of big tent, where the Republican Party was trying to bringing a, a, a big tent to welcome more uh, more more women, uh, more African Americans, more. Um, Asians, Latinos, or whatever. Um, somehow they got off the rails after that. But George into Bush, business, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Encouraging women the, and minorities and to come into the Republican Party.
1: That I was see. that was the other side of me that I was doing to encouraging encouraging different ethnic groups to uh, that the Republican Party was not just a party of, of folks that looked like me, and that the, the the people that had the same values and the same beliefs uh, were warmly welcomed. And that was a great program that George Bush the first. So I I end up meeting. George Bush at that point and and that was you know you, Jagger Hoover and now now George Bush so but um but I this position at uh, Secretary General of the Pacific Basin Economic Council I looked at this and it it uh, it was an organization at the time of about 12 countries and it represented some of the most powerful business people um in, in all the Asia Pacific region and I came in and my predecessors had all been sort of uh, uh, from the Depar- Department of, of uh, State or from the uh, Australian Foreign Ministry or whatever, a great, great political types but really didn't know how to run a business. So I, I put on my business hat and said, look, we're going to take this organization from here, way up here. So I was with them for 10 years in that position and I elevated the organ. I, with the help of board and God's notes, but on my board, Carly Fiorino, I, I got to know well, um, actually met uh, Bill Hewlett and David Packard of HP in their day. So I'm meeting all these crazy, important, wonderful people who I'd like to say still put their pants on one leg at a time. So they never, ever, I never stargazed with these people um, because all I know is that they were doing good things in the world that people didn't always know about. So that led me to um, um, take, taking on this position and we moved to Hawaii for a long time. And then from Hawaii, we, uh, we moved to Hong Kong where I ran that and it kind of merged in with something called APEC. Which is a, a government organization for the Asia Pacific region, but during the middle of all this, um, because the political side of things, I got to know Maureen Reagan, who was a wonder, the, the daughter of, of um, Ronald, Ronald Reagan, Reagan. Yeah. and uh, she was running for Congress. Um, and uh, but as I told her, it's hard to get elected as a Republican when you live in the People's Republic of Santa Monica, which is a very liberal, very you know, liberal place. Yeah. But but I got to know um, I got
0: to know Ronald Reagan because of that. And that's Ronald Reagan is my guy. So Maureen, so Maureen then had uh, a strong enough relationship with her father at that time that it gave you access to the president. And, and um, yes, it did. And, um, and, and she,
1: she's the daughter of Jane Wyatt, I think, right. Uh, Not of Nancy. I believe I'm correct on that. I'll take your word. on. Yeah, I think so. And, and, uh, and she's just a really good person that I just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, professionally and everything else just kind of fell in love with, you know, from, and wanted to do everything I could do to help her. But in the middle of all this, I'd already been to the Martin Luther King, I mean, the horrible riots. I lived through those in Washington. So during this career that I'm at the Pacific Basin Economic Council, I'm in Beijing when Tiananmen Square breaks out. That would have been 89. I think I'm right on that. I might be wrong on that. I think I am. Okay. Um, So uh, I'm, I'm there, and I experienced Tiananmen Square. Two years later, my son graduates from Berkeley and I'm going to Russia on some business matters. And um, he went with me and so the coup against Gorbachev occurred right underneath our hotel window. So that's why, you know, I mentioned before about this. You really have lived a forest complex. It, it's, it's, you it's, find
0: yourself in the most amazing places yeah. under the most interesting of circumstances. And, of course, living in Los Angeles at
1: the time. Um, I was living in Los Angeles when the Rodney King verdict came out. And I was in downtown L.A., so we experienced that as Oh, my well. goodness. And then I was at the meeting of the World Trade Organization in Seattle when the riots occurred there. So I've had this kind of very interesting um, you know, I had nothing to do with any of those. By the way, I want to I want to go on record here, but uh, it, it just been able to experience these things, and so the people that I got to know um, through the organizations that I was I was involved with, um, I, you know, it it uh, it they they, they included um, uh, 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 Bill Clinton. Um, I've met Barack Obama a, a couple times. I didn't know I didn't get to know him the way I did Bill Bill Clinton but also four presidents of Mexico, the president of Peru, Malaysia's prime minister. I mean, these are the people, because of this Pacific Basin Economic Council that I headed, that I got to to meet, got to know, and in some cases had long, long discussions with. So it's been, it's, it's been, you know, it's,
0: it's been a wild ride and how often given your, your business dealings and your exposure to these world leaders, especially when we talk about politics, your relationship with Maureen Reagan and, uh, your, your connection to George Herbert Walker Bush and, uh, going back to the days in the late sixties when you were working close to J Edgar Hoover. And then you have a son who attends UC Berkeley. I'm, I'm trying to figure this guy out. I mean, where are you leaning on the yeah, political well, spectrum? I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of um, up for
1: the side of good, I'll put it that way. And, and, and I am very much, uh, I'm an internationalist, but I'm still very much, we got to take care of our own people first. That, that's been my philosophy. And that's why on the trade front, I watched, I, w- I was very much involved in, 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 in feeding information into the, uh, the trade representatives of the United States and to other countries. Because of this this trade council that I headed, right with all these, chairman of Motorola was the chairman of the organization once, and or Kodak, all the uh, Hyundai, LG, Toyota, all of them were in this council that I was uh, I was the head of, right. And so I it I figured out again as a as a small boy growing up in New Richmond, where probably every probably one in every four of my buddies' dads worked in Norwood for Fisher Body. Or they worked at Baldwin Piano, or they or they worked at U.S. U.S. Playing Cards, I think it was. Mm. All and 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 then of course, uh, Sensei millicron was the king of kings of of um, machine tool, you know, uh, in the world. As matter of fact, Japanese uh, until they uh, uh, figured out how to make machine tools and all would buy from Sensei millicron you know, and and then later they pretty well put him out of business. But so anyway, I'm watching this, and my job is to you know this this Holy grail that they all talk about free trade, which does not exist on this planet. Countries take care of their own first before they, you know, just let anything happen on free trade. You know, the, the best product, you know, best, uh, price or whatever should win and, you know, and, and take over the world. Right. Uh, but, but I watched for years and years how our government would just negotiate horrible trade deals. I mean, just horrible trade deals that would always, it, it comes from a pure, their mentality at the State Department, and it exists today, and, and I would argue with some of the other departments as well, goes back to the Marshall Plan when we rebuilt Europe after, after Europe was destroyed, right? And we rebuilt Japan, and we did that for them, but also we f- were starting to fear the, the, the Russians at the time, right? So we wanted them to be strong, we wanted them to come back. But what we did, so we, we, we set up these these trade agreements where virtually anything, uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, I'm embellishing this a little bit, but anything that they produce, you could sell it in America. Great, it's good quality, good price, whatever, and we're helping the world, right? But there never was a sunset on that that said, you know,
0: when you guys get up to be rich and powerful, when you get your sea legs you and find you, your footing. Yes, the day is going to come where we have to make this more equitable.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and this was my thing. So on the one hand, I'm representing an organization that is fighting for, you know, whatever big business wanted. On the other hand, I'm still that boy back in New Richmond, Ohio, knowing the guys at the bar and watching the families, how they've suffered as jobs left this country. Yeah. How do you reconcile that? I reconciled it by saying enough's enough. And, and I, I decided I wanted, that's when I kind of made the decision that I wanted to come home, but, but, uh, I enjoyed it and any chance I, I could make uh, to talk to countries about, you know, about, you know, this, these inequities and in trade and how that affects people in Appalachia, the inner cities of America, American, you know, African Americans, Hispanic uh, of the legal type, uh, poor white people in Appalachia. And I think because of the Appalachian roots that I have on mom's side of the family, I was very much in tune to that, that I felt that all people really wanted really uh, what, what they expected, I think from government is to have um, it's not it's not welfare. It's not, if anything, that's 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 not what they want at all. It's not it's not food stamps. It's a job, not to be created by the job, but for government to be able to create an environment that allows the private sector to prosper and and to create jobs. But there is no excuse for the loss of the companies that I just um, I just uh, mentioned that are no longer are you know are shadows of themselves in the past. They, our our businesses were targeted uh, by by powerful countries, not not just a, a competitive uh, manufacturer of a given widget. Let's say machine tools. That it wasn't just that company. It's it's in the case of Japan, Japan incorporated, including the government and everything else that supports their businesses to penetrate a market. And and dumping is something that was a part of it. When I watched, like U.S. TV industry go away and, you know, the, the Motorola's humbled down to whatever and, and, and steel and all this just go away. It's that our manufacturers were expected to compete with products coming in from overseas that are sold way below their, their, their cost of manufacturing, uh, in order for those, those companies on the part of the other countries to, to destroy an industry in this country. And then they would walk in and they would, they would own the industry.
0: So when we talk about jobs, for instance, yes. and this has been the hot topic in politics where jobs go overseas right. and a lot of those are manufacturing jobs. Yes, they are. President Trump says, all right, look, I'm going to change that. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to create incentives and I'm going to try to lean on these guys to keep jobs here in America, right. but it costs more to yeah. make things in America, yeah. doesn't it? You know, less and less,
1: that's the case. Um, but you have to look at it this way. And, and this sort of if, if there is a liberal side of me being environmentally sensitive and all that and, and thinking of, 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 uh, of individual rights and all that, uh, uh, it, the, the, that side would say it's costing us less at what cost. Um, companies go to Mexico because their labor laws are extremely weak and the people are underpaid and they, and they, 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 they look away at pollution by companies, So if you, if you want to make more money as a company, you darn right, you'll want to go to these countries. Um, there, you know, there was a time when, it, let's just go back to an example of, let's say it's Nike shoes or making t-shirts, a lot of labor in that. Right. Right. I, boy, I can justify how they, uh, Thailand and whoever it is in the world, how they could, you know, and they, they have a right to make products and sell to us at a good price. Yeah. Well, and if you're paying them fairly, you know, Th- that's it. Bottom line is they're not, and, and secondly, and this is where the argument these days of, oh, manufacturing is all yesterday, it's all, you know, it's all blase, it's all now, it's all IT and it's all service industry. Still got to make things. You got to make things. You got to make things and trade things and sell things. But when you look now at manufacturing, a big argument that I get from, from, from friends who don't agree with me, if you will, Um, is, well, why do you want manufacturing? Robots are taking those jobs anyway. Well, I will take you to a wonderful facility and a company that I deeply love is Toyota. And if you go down to Georgetown, Kentucky, they will, with pride, show you their robots. And I believe the number is 1,600 robots. And you say, there's an example. No, (laughs) Toyota employs 8,000 Kentuckians. Right in that in the plant, and, okay. They've got many of whom operate those, and robots. they do. <laughs> they, they got to operate them. They got to repair them. They got to make sure they're on schedule. And there's a lot of other stuff to be done as well. And people using their heads and all. And what else does Toyota do, for instance? Um, if they have a luncheon meeting and they need sandwiches brought in, the plant is there, right? So they send find. Hopefully, they find a little mom and pop restaurant like Front Street Cafe in Richmond, but but whatever is they they'll find someone in the community of George of uh, uh, Georgetown. And, and, and then the people that come in to wash the windows are local and the gardeners are local and on and on and on. And, and here's the big thing. If you don't have a factory, what's that, 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 that amazing uh, investment is going untaxed in the United States. The schools aren't benefiting if you don't have that factory, right? Um, uh, uh, The uh, income tax isn't being paid by workers because they're not there. So this whole argument that we don't need manufacturing is 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 absolutely ridiculous. So and 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 I would argue that because the, the the manufacturing is becoming more and more mechanized, and by the way, so is the service industry, right? Become more mechanized. All the more reason we better be very careful to to make sure that that our um, the, the the Americans that that are in that blue collar area. Um, are getting a fair shake when it comes to international trade agreements and all that. That they're not, that we don't have an immigration policy that's pouring illegals in that will work for virtually nothing because Walmart wants them or, or wealthy farmers in the West want them or whatever. To me, the precious people that I, I'm concerned about are, are again, it's, it's, the, it's the, you know, the poor people in, in Appalachia, it's African-Americans and it's and it's Latinos and, and, and Asians that are Americans. And I say we invest in them and and get them, you know, get them up to, to where they could be if in fact the jobs were there paying what they want. And when someone says to me, Americans won't do that job. And, and you know what? My answer to that is malarkey. If you pay them the right wage, they will do it. And as long as you've got forces with stuff being shipped in here from overseas at below costs that kill jobs in America and then an influx of, of uh, illegal, it's a different story through regular immigration. But when you just flood the market with cheap labor, the, the other Americans that are down there trying to move up the, the the line, they don't have an opportunity. They don't have an opportunity It's taken away from them. So all the more reason, the more mechanized manufacturing becomes in service industry, all the more reasons why we need to take care of. And I don't mean take care of by the government. I'm talking about allow for a, 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 a you know a, a proper understanding of what it takes to keep our own people employed and that means they're not on on public assistance they're you know they're not going to the government I don't know anybody that wants to go to the government for assistance but to have to and if the jobs are there and the trainings there this country can as far as I'm concerned there's no limits to what we can you know what we can do
0: so let's talk about this trade war with yes. China President yes. Trump says yeah. enough is enough yes we're going to make this more fair more equitable Republican congressmen and senators are begging him, please don't start a trade war with China. We don't, this is, we're starting a trade war that we can't win. First of all, it's not a trade war at all. It's called
1: competition. Fair competition is what it's all about. And there is, you know, I have, I have had meetings at the top of, uh, of companies like Microsoft and others where, where they talk about China's their future. But after they're there a while and suddenly it's a, uh, well, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't go into this market. You can't, you can't make cars. You, you can't, you, you don't bring in your own stuff. You got to develop it locally. You got to transfer your technology. And for that, we might give you 49% ownership in, in a local company and you, and you've lost, you've given up all of your, uh, technology, all of your intellectual property. China's done that from the get go. China should never have been allowed to enter the world trade organization. And I was very much a part of those discussions. Um, at the time, China wasn't ready, uh, to enter the WTO when it did. And because what that does, the WTO says, you're now a, a country that abides by the laws, you're, 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 you're moving up, you're coming up and you should be a part of the family of, you know, of, of, of modern nations. And, and, and the WTO has mechanisms to help them. China is treated in the WTO the same way as Djibouti is. China's got an economy that, if you measure it on, there's different ways of measuring an economy, but one one is called purchasing power parity, and that's what a buck will 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 actually buy you in a country. Forget about what levels the currencies are at. China's actually a bigger economy than ours. Djibouti is, you know, it's it's probably west side of Cincinnati is about the same economy as Djibouti, you know, as an example. But they're treated the same in the WTO because WTO. Uh, it was was mesmerized by this this china thing and it was going to be open and all of these big companies were going to flourish and and all of that and it was going to be great i think it's great that china is mixing mingling out there and and i've got great respect for the chinese people by the way n- nothing that i'm saying here has anything at all to do with the people of those countries it's the governments of those countries and sometimes I, I'm actually impressed with the governments of those countries because they think of their own people first, and we don't. That's the thing, and I've watched it. So back back to where Trump is today. Donald Trump shouldn't have had to have happened um, from the standpoint of bringing this all to a head. It's only because administrations after administrations after administrations before him were drinking the Kool Aid of a free trade and Marshall Plan mentality, where we were this rich. Sugar Daddy, that could pay for the defense of Europe and pay for the defense of Japan, require very little from them, and that we would open and and buy everything they can produce without but, but, consequence but for
0: countries with such a strong economy like china where such a mentality isn't necessary do you think they were just weak leaders that were afraid of a trade war and were they concerned that the u.s would be on the losing end the biggest in my humble opinion and and it's uh, yeah it's humble um in my opinion
1: uh the worst enemies of our negotiations with other countries are americans the the pundits on television that that slam everything that when we go forward with what is absolutely justifiable, what president Trump has said on trade, absolutely. Um, we need aluminum and we need steel. If, and if anybody believes that you don't let think forward a little bit, if, if we happen to have a war and we're going to, yeah, are we going to buy it from China? Is that, is that the deal? Um, you know, I mean, for some things you need to have strategic, uh, you know, uh, sort of capabilities to produce strategic, um, uh, uh, re- resources, equipment, or whatever it might be, um, but back to uh, but to answer your question, so you get these pundits on TVs, the, the Wall Street crowd and and ba- big bankers that trade money, they don't care if the money's flowing that way, flowing this way, they get their little piece of it, right? There honestly isn't a caring of the average person in the United States, the blue collar, the the the, the, the working class people, there isn't on their parts. And it's like, oh, free, free, free. Let's you know, if you lose, your industry loses. It should go out of business. It's obsolete. We don't make corsets anymore, right? We don't make wheels for uh, horse and carriages. I mean, th- things change. Whatever. Winners, losers. This is much, much uh, different than that. And 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 when these pundits stand up and they slam um, a president who's speaking up for the people who are have been ignored, actually, um, you know, shame on them. And especially if you've got an elected official. Um uh, that goes to another country that who 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 himself, him or herself, have been senior officials of the United States, whether it be a Secretary of state or a former president, and you go to somebody else's country and you badmouth the current president, the p- current policy or whatever, so you can sell more books or become more uh, famous by your constituency. You know shame on us, that's the way I look at it. because I want to tell you, on the other side, in the case of China, you will never hear dissension. Against trade policy, when China speaking by by Chinese, if the Chinese market were open, if the Japanese market were more open, if the German market were open, and not just you know fixated on protecting their own their own jobs and all, the German people I could argue would be better off because they'd have lower price uh, p- uh, products as as good whatever that would some of them would be coming from the United States. Ditto for China and all these. But in our case, you've got you've got you've got these contrasting, conflicting. Uh, to, to say someone is a Republican, and he feels this way or that way, or Democrat this way or that way. There was a time when the Democrats truly cared for the working class, and they and, and if anything, they questioned long and hard and loudly uh, through organizations like the Economic Strategy Institute in Washington about, okay, we're losing our textile industry. We lost our, um, our our manufacturing. Go to go to the Carolinas now, and and if you see a Broyhill or a, a whatever brand it might be, it's a warehouse. The stuff's made in China and, and brought, you know, and, and used. It's just basically they use the brand and their distribution system. But but the the bottom line is we somebody had to take a stand. And if there's something about Trump that 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 I think you know like like him or not, um, he typically does throw out um you know little little missiles and see what the what the reaction is and then typically something works out but as I, I, it wasn't too many months ago oh my god he's down on nato he wants to shut it down he never said that what he said is he they need to pay their fair share and you know what they're doing today they're paying their fair share why did it take so long for it to get to this point because because of our marshall plan um um uh um,
0: uh, you know, I mean, I could see at. that, but I could yeah. understand that with with yeah. countries that yeah. hadn't found their yep. footing. But yep. we, did we, we just never shook that mentality? Mm-hmm. Why we don't? And government doesn't sunset
1: anything, right? Including mentality. But you when you have entrenched, um, when you have an entrenchment in the State Department, for instance, it feels a particular way. You just don't want to upset the apple cart, I and, guess. And huh? and I will say this, and believe me, I know these people. I've worked with them all my life. Um, but they also are one-worlders that truly believe that that there should be one world government and that we need to be, you know subservient to whatever, you know, and I always call them the faceless bureaucrats of Brussels, for instance, for the uh, economic uh, union. But uh, do we want government bu- bureaucrats running the world? And I think not. And And the United States is still a bastion of freedom and a bastion of free enterprise, where you can come, and I would argue you need to come the right way. But if you come through the channels and and, and and you do it legally, that anybody can continue today. The American dream, believe me, is still well and alive overseas. But I'll have friends of mine saying, oh, we're now hated overseas. We're not hated overseas. Uh, but but if you go in to talk to foreigners in their country and you immediately start slamming our president and policy or whatever, they might jump on because they're saying, hey, I trust you and 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 that's what you believe as an American. So you know, you know, I, I just like for everybody to start thinking a little bit more about our own country. And and when the United States does well, the world does well. Back to the uh, your your comments about trade war. There is no trade war. The Europeans are are talking with us right now about
0: uh, about uh, the changes, the amounts of steel that's going to pour in, and all this other stuff. But when it became a tit for tat yeah. tariff on this and on that between China and the U.S. And there were a lot of people on Capitol Hill that were very concerned about Plus what this are. was going to lead to.
1: Because their lobbyists are working on them in Congress. The big, big business is, is, uh, it works on the congressman to say, there are no lobbyists for the, av- for the average guy. You know, there's nobody, uh, there's no lobbyist that will, will say, you know, I live in Hartwell or, you know, or I, I live in, 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 in Delhi or whatever and I've got a job and I'm worried that job's going to leave. And it's not any, and it's not the fault of the company, it's, it's fault of, of of, of uh, trade agreements. Bottom line is when you think about this when Trump came out on uh, aluminum steel oh it's going to be the end of the world. Right. And when he came out and he said I'm out of nafta, N- nafta is another one. It was it was a giveaway to Mexico. And and um and uh, and it, it needs to be renegotiated. That's, that's I, I do believe in a close relationship between um Canada, Mexico and in the and the United States. But you don't have to uh just again, open the floodgates for anything that comes in, while they still restrict what comes in from the United States into their country. You see China blinking here. Oh, they 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 don't have a choice. But but when they came back, when you talked about uh, this tit for tat, what did they do? They said, well, we're going to pick uh, where are the states that Trump is vulnerable. Ah, and they grow. Well, what do they What do they sell to us? Soybeans. I mean, I could have predicted this. Like, uh, I mean, I did predict it to people if they you know if they'd listened to me, but uh, but but. That, that's one thing. So so they, they did that, and I think that's kind of blown up in their face. And then and then one other thing I'd tell you where there's been success recently. Two years ago, we were signing a, a deal with the Koreans, um, a free trade agreement. And I was against it because, it, again, it was one of those. Free trade agreement. When you say the uh, Koreans, you mean South Korea? South Korea. Yeah. South Korea. And suddenly you started seeing these big washing machines and dryers at Home Depot. And you started to see fewer GEs and Maytags or whatever. They were, they were the little guy, the little machines they can make and they can ship in containers, but it, it, everyone knows they can't ship big bulky wash machines and refrigerators and all, and be competitive. They need to build them here. So Trump called them out and he was absolutely right. GE sold uh, its appliance business as a result of this to the Chinese, by the way. So now it'll all be made in China, I suppose. Right. And, and Maytag, all of them. they're in trouble, jobs lost, whatever. Right. So anyway, but because of what Trump's done, um, suddenly now Samsung says, hey, we're going to build a plant. I think it's in Alabama. And, and LG says, we're going to build a plant. I think it's, I don't know, Mississippi or someplace. So they're going to start making stuff here. And that's what it's all about. We don't have to stop. As a of fact, I believe in, in encouraging, um, th- through lower taxes, fewer uh, regulations, encouraging company, companies to come here and build things, but they need to create wealth in this country. If we're buying their stuff, the least they can do is create jobs in our country. Two
0: thousand six. Yeah, you walk away from it all. Yeah, you move back to New Richmond. Yes, <laughs> you buy a restaurant. Yeah, well, you know, I know I'm a, a... the guy who was rubbing shoulders with heads of state, yeah. directors of the power, the most powerful world leaders. Yeah, Natalie Jones, who is the producer of this, she books this interview. She tells me she's on the phone with you, and you're out bussing tables. <laughs> Well, see,
1: what they do this morning? Yeah, I, 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 from here I have to go to the bonbonnerie. by the way. Who, I'll put in a plug for them. We, have, we get two of our cakes from them, and they're, they're the gold standard. The rest of them we make ourselves, our own chef. Um, but when I came home, I, I really wasn't going to go in the restaurant business, but I knew we, I needed to buy some property, and we needed to. Uh, the, the little town has had its issues. I don't like to use F words, so uh, above optimal water level of the river affects us on occasion. And, and there's this government entity, uh, another F word called FEMA, it's not done well <laughs> at all with, with small historic river towns. Right. And so when I came back, I bought way too much property at the wrong time at the stock market and all crashed about that time. So I typically, as I always do by and you know, sell low, but, but I restored several properties that, that would have been torn down otherwise, even though in one case, it was a home of a fabulously important abolitionist who also happened to deliver President Ulysses S. Grand into the world and it's in New Richmond and we saved that building. I saved some other buildings. So as far as the restaurant thing goes, it was like, I figure I buy it and they will come. Someone will come and they want to, you know, they want to manage it. They want to furnish. it. And then they're saying, no, no, but if you furnish it, then they'll come and lease it from you. I never had any intentions of managing it, but then that didn't happen either. Right? The economy's bad and whatever. So then I decided. Then the DNA, you know, I mean, it's in your blood. This, uh, this if you've been, if you've been from a family of, as long as I have in restaurants, that you need, you need to, you need just do it yourself. So hit, hits and starts, whatever, uh, uh, you know, labor of love, whatever it is. But uh, we put together, and 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 also while I've been there, we've we've got a, a very dynamic uh, community theater now in New Richmond. We've got a great historic society. Um, we've a, a garden club that's second to none. And it's all volunteer. And so so good things are happening out there. And I am I just feel very proud to have been back and be a part of it.
0: Well, for anyone who's listening, the next time you're in Richmond, you must stop at the Front Street Cafe <laughs> and say hello to Bob Lee's. And if you speak Japanese, you should say it in Japanese. Konnichiwa. Konnichiwa. <laughs> How often do you get back to Japan? Um,
1: yeah. Once or twice a year, and family come this way. And you know,
0: It's on you my know, bucket know, list. Right? It's on my goal. I'm going to try to go. We're hoping to go, if all goes well, maybe by Labor Day of yeah. next year.
1: Well, I will give you some places to go that are off the beaten path and all that. But, but by the way, there's one other thing I would like to say about Japan. Uh, I'm very, very, very um, honored to be a trustee of the Japan America Society of Greater Cincinnati. And Japanese companies are about 120 of them, but they employ over 30,000 Americans in Greater Cincinnati. And I bet you didn't know that. I did not. Because know they're that. quiet, and and they do a they do a great job. And the Japan American Society works with the uh, the, the Japanese, you know, to make sure that the the the, uh, the spouses, for instance, of the executives that come in from overseas uh, know the uh, the lay of the land and all. And 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 we're actually bringing. Uh, I need to get the attention of uh, the Chamber of Cincinnati Chamber and the the, uh, Regional Economic Development Initiative ready because there's a group of of Japanese significant companies that are coming to Cincinnati in June with the idea of of looking for business opportunities to invest in. So um, that's, you know, I'm very, very proud of the Japan American Society and what they do. And uh, we've planted now almost, I think it's 200 Japanese cherry trees in Old Park. And if uh, I think we missed the season already, but, uh, but if you ever springtime when the cherry blossoms are in bloom, it's amazing. Uh, you know what old park is, uh, thanks to what the Japan American society is.
0: Doing. I would love it. Yeah. And I love talking to you, Bob. Lees. Okay. You are a fascinating guy. <laughs> well, it's, it's a real pleasure. And I certainly enjoy, uh, uh, listening to you on the,
1: on the radio with all the good things you do. And, uh, we're all proud to be greater Cincinnatians.
0: Thank you for spending the time. Bob Lees. It was good having you. Thanks for coming on person of interest. Thank you. Person of Interest is produced by Natalie Jones. And if you found Bob as interesting as we did, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to POI, which stands for Person of Interest, POI at WKRQ.com. We always welcome your thoughts. And feel free to make a suggestion for a future person of interest. We're going to keep on producing more of these episodes as long as folks like you continue to listen. So. Make sure you check back with us occasionally, and don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, for Person of Interest, I'm Jeff Thomas. Thanks for listening. These are the people behind the stories that matter to you. Thanks for listening to Q&O2's Person of Interest with Jeff Thomas.